If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Holy Father, what a great salvation you have bestowed upon people who deserve nothing, but you've given us everything. We just want to tell you this morning we love you. We want to offer you our praise and our adoration. Thank you for the Holy Spirit making dead hearts alive, for crying out within us, Abba, Father. And now, our Father, as we approach you this morning, thank you that we come through our great high priest who instructed us to come to you as a father whom your word says we are to come boldly to find help in time of need. We pray for our nation today that your just ways might be done and deeds of darkness would be uncovered, that your plans would indeed unfold in a way that's honorable to you. We pray for ourselves as we open the Word of God. We know that it is truth. Jesus, you said, sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you use your inspired Word to shape us, to mold us, to make us, to renew our thinking that our lives might in turn be changed. So help me this morning, help each of us as we read the Scripture. Please come and fill me and anoint me and use me for the glory of Christ, and in his holy name I pray, amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Acts of the Apostles, the 28th chapter. If you are here for the first time or live streaming, we have finished the book of Revelation, and since that time, I've done a number of series on Elijah the prophet on spiritual gifts and then some assorted topics. And as I promised you, late in the fall, we would begin a brand new book of the Bible. So God willing, the first week in December, we'll begin a brand new book and go through it verse by verse. But with that said, we are living in challenging days, but God has not forsaken us, just as He promised. It's the promise of the new covenant. He sent the Holy Spirit, our comforter, our helper, our guide. These past few weeks, I've gotten several emails and letters over my comments about the recent presidential election. I made some people obviously very mad. I made other people glad. But that does not surprise me because whenever you preach the truth, you'll make some mad or glad. And my goal is not to make you mad or glad. My goal is to please the Lord and to say what He says. And if you're here, then what I encouraged you to do as a believer was to examine each presidential platform to see which one best was in sync with the Holy Scriptures, and then to vote accordingly. And by the way, if the election does not go in the direction in which you had hoped, 
I understand that maybe for some it would be easy to lose hope, but our hope is not in this government. Our hope is in the Lord. And as God's people, we are commanded to honor the king, to pray for our leaders, but our hope is in the Lord. Now, I don't know exactly what God is up to. I do know that he is sovereign and on his throne, that no one in heaven is sweating. There's no panic there. I do know that men can do some very evil things, and indeed, if there is fraud in this election, I pray, as I hope you are, that it will be uncovered and people will be held accountable because our republic cannot stand when there's that kind of cheating. I don't know, but I do know that contrary to popular belief, the media does not certify elections. The Congress of the United States does, and they will make that calculation on the 6th of January. And come Inauguration Day on the 20th of January, whoever is the President of the United States, we will respect the office and we will pray for that individual. But just know as your pastor that I will always support policies that are consistent with Scripture, and I will always oppose policies that go against Scripture. My duty as a called man of God is to preach the truth and not to compromise it. And so what are we to do? What are we to do in this day? How are we to perceive the days in which we live, and how are we to act? Well, we're to keep on keeping on. We're to live righteously. We're to study the Word of God. We're to love our neighbor. We're to hate evil. We're to expose falsehood. And we are, as the title of this morning's sermon indicates, we are to share what we believe. Listen, just because a church has a cross on the top of it does not mean that it is a sanctioned church by God. And just because a man calls himself a pastor does not mean that he is a God-ordained, God-called pastor. And we're living in days where there's a great shakedown that is happening. This is a day that tries the souls of men. And each and every believer needs to stand firm and be faithful. We have a mandate from our commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus, that we are to go into all the world and we are to make disciples, make converts, and that has not changed in 2,000 years. And it doesn't matter how difficult the circumstances may get, we will stick to the script and we will do what God has called us to do. And listen, one of the reasons our nation is so sick and in so much trouble is because the church is lukewarm. Many of God's people are distracted, they are disobedient, they are cold-hearted, and they have stopped doing what God has called them to do, and that is to go make converts of all nations. And so I've selected this passage in Acts this morning because it gives us some very, very practical advice on how to do that. One dying believer, he'd been a Christian two weeks, said this to his pastor, I quote, I'm not afraid to die for Jesus has saved me but I have led no one to him. Must I go empty-handed? When a Baptist pastor by the name of Charles Luther heard that testimony, he wrote a hymn. And these are the words that he penned in 1877. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior's soul? So, not one soul with which to greet him, must I empty-handed go? When I was a brand new Christian in 1974, we sang that hymn in the church that I was a part of. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with him with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? 
Ask yourself this morning, when was the last time you had a part in any way, shape, or form in bringing someone into the kingdom? When was the last time you even tried? When was the last time maybe you extended an invitation for someone to come to church? When was the last time you prayed for someone that you knew was lost and in need of a Savior? What we need in the American church today is for God's people to reach the lost and help to grow the saved. God calls us, in essence, spiritual obstetricians. He doesn't write the gospel on the clouds. He doesn't shout it from the rocks, though he could. He uses individuals like you and I to be able to share the good news with those who are lost. But he's also called us to be spiritual pediatricians. That once they come into the kingdom, we are to encourage them to grow with them to the fullness that belongs to Christ. Now, if you know the book of Acts, it's really a blueprint. It's God's design on how the church should function. And if you sit down and you read the book of Acts, one of the things that you discover on virtually every page is that it is a very evangelistic church. And in many ways, the style and commitment that they had to evangelism is so contrary to the modern church. And yet this small group of people, really a despised people, with no seminaries, no Bible colleges, no radio, no printing presses, no internet, no television, none of those things, a small group of people who went out against the might of imperial Rome, who had to deal with the philosophical sophistication of the Greek culture, who thought that what they preached was foolishness. They went out and they told people about an executed Jew who died on a cross, who was raised from the dead, and by the grace of God, as one of their critics said, they turned the world upside down. They did so much with so little. And yet we live in a day where we have so much and we do so little. So I think this passage this morning is very, very helpful to us because it will give us some ways in which we can share the gospel. And if you haven't led anyone to Christ in some way where God used you in the last few years, I really want you to listen and pay close attention. Now, this is one of five historical books in the New Testament, the historical books we usually call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, and then the book of Acts. The emphasis in the Gospels is on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, but in the Acts, it's what Christ does through His church by the Holy Spirit as He promised. And what you find in Acts is not some hodgepodge collection of notes. It's a very well-ordered, well-structured book so that we can become what God wants us to become. And in many ways, it's like the book of Genesis. Barashit is the Jewish name for Genesis, Genosios in Greek, in the Septuagint. It means beginnings. Genesis is the book of beginnings. So is the book of Acts. It's a book of beginnings. We find the very first local church. We find the first deacons and elders. We find the first outreaches, the first church plants, the first missions movement, the first Jewish Gentile fellowships, and the first persecutions. And our passage is helpful because it's not describing Paul doing mass evangelism like he did up on Mars Hill. It's not Paul speaking in some large synagogue. It's not Paul speaking like he did in Athens, in Ephesus to a large, huge theater. No, it's Paul just dealing with people in the everyday events of life where you and I live. 
Now, let me see if we can set the context here for the book. I have a chart here for you that will help you to visualize the book. There's really two ways that people typically try to think through Acts, and it's helpful to know the big picture of a book so that you can find your way around it and it becomes a tool, not just for your own life, but in the discipleship of others. You can certainly uh, outline the book biographically because there are two key people. There's the Apostle Peter, my clicker doesn't work, so follow my finger. There's the Apostle Peter, and he is focused in chapters 1 through 12. And then there's the Apostle Paul, who's focused in the second half, verses uh, chapters 13 all the way to the end of the book, 28. So those are the two principal characters. They're both found in both halves, but the first half deals primarily with Peter, the second half with Paul, and the bridge between the two, of course, is Stephen. Uh, Another way in which you can outline the book, and I think it's a better way, it's based on Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, because this is one of the few books in the New Testament that God put within the book a divinely inspired outline. You probably know Acts 1.8. Jesus said before his ascension, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And what he states there by word of prophecy in Acts 1.8 is what unfolds in the next 30 years. And so beyond the biography of Peter and Paul, um, you have in Acts 1 through 7, the church started, which is a picture of local missions there in Jerusalem. Uh, An event happens. If you remember, Stephen, that preaching deacon, gives an incredible sermon. It's recorded in Acts chapter 7. And these Jewish people to whom he's preaching, and by the way, as I said in the first service, if you're trying to put together the Old Testament, study the sermon of the apostle, not the apostle, but of the deacon Stephen. And I have a whole message on it. Study Stephen's sermon because he really capsulizes the entire Old Testament. And you'll be able to really work your way around it if you'll study his sermon. And so he gets up, he preaches this sermon in Jerusalem, he makes people so angry, they rock him to death, and they do so under the leadership of the Apostle Paul. So a hinge verse in the book of Acts is Acts 8 and verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death, and on that day, great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Where? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, that's Acts 1-8 except the apostles whom God called to stay in Jerusalem to protect the church. So in Acts 8 through 12, you have the church scattered. It's a picture of what we might call home missions. Uh, Then when you come to chapter 13, we are told in Acts 13 and verse 1, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, and then they're named. And while they're ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, God had called these men to be missionaries. I think both were apostles, by the way, but that's neither here nor there. But these men were called of God. But what this church recognized was that they as a church needed to personally support them. And so missions begins with the local churches, churches that come alongside and help missionaries. And so when they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. And so Acts 13 begins the third section of the book, what we call the church spread. And it's a picture really of what we might refer to as foreign missions. 
they go to the remotest part of the earth. Uh, there it is. All right. So you find the very first foreign missionary. So that's the book of Acts. The church started one through seven. And Luke is a premier historian, and he drops all these little chronological cr- clues in there. So we know it covers two years. Acts 8 through 12, just as Jesus prophesied in Acts 1-8, they are scattered into Judea and Samaria. That covers a period of 13 years. And then beginning in Acts 13 through 28, even to the remotest part of the earth, it covers another 15 years. And so it's a picture of the first 30 years of church history. Now, the book begins and ends in the same way. It's about a saved people preaching to condemn people, how they can be forgiven. And that doesn't surprise us because the Spirit of Christ is living in them. And for the Son of Man, Jesus said, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And that's what he's commissioned every true born-again Christian to do on his behalf. Now, chapter 28 is a long chapter, so I'm not going to read our text in its entirety, but I would like to begin by reading the last eight verses here of Acts 28. Follow along. When they had set a day, verse 23, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophet, and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. Now, with that background, let's dig into the finer points of the passage. If you know this section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul, for many years, had had a dream to go to the city of Rome. Years before, as recorded in Acts chapter 19, When Paul is in the city of Ephesus, God the Holy Spirit had put that earnest desire in his heart to go to Rome. Listen to Acts chapter 19 and verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. The Lord Jesus also put it in his heart. Not only did God the Spirit say in his spirit, I want you to go to Rome. The Lord Jesus appeared to him in Acts 23 and 11. And Jesus said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. In addition, God the Father said to the Apostle Paul that he was going to Rome, and he did it through the means of an angel. And the angel promised Paul that when on that ship, though it would go under, that he would be preserved and he would go to Rome. Listen to what the angel said in verse 24. Do not be afraid, Paul, 
Acts 27, 24. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and before God. And behold, God has granted you all, you all those who are sailing with you. So, Paul, you're going to Rome. You're going to be a witness for Christ. No wonder Paul could say with such conviction in Romans 1.15, for I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. God the Spirit said, you're going to Rome. God the Son said, you're going to Rome. God's angel on behalf of the Father said, you're going to Rome and you're going to testify before Caesar. And so this apostle, when he comes to the end of the book of Romans, with full confidence, he said, listen, after I've finished my ministry in Jerusalem, he's writing Romans from the city of Corinth. After I've finished my ministry in Jerusalem, that's Acts 21 through 23, I will go to you by way of you. And after that, I'll go to Spain. Now, I realize that maybe you will never be called to go to Rome, but you are called of God to go out and make a difference in people's lives with the good news that we share. Jesus called every born-again Christian to share the good news. Listen to what he said in John 15 and verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Every believer has been chosen and ordained of God to go and bear fruit. Now understand, fruit is used, that term, in three ways in the New Testament. There's the character of Christ, what we call the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. There's the fruit of the Spirit. There is, as in the book of Colossians in the first chapter, fruit is described as good deeds done on behalf of Christ. But also, like here in John chapter 15, there is the fruit of winning someone to Christ, a, con a convert. Now, God wants to use you in bringing someone to Christ, and we can play different roles in that, in that endeavor. Already in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, when he addressed the disciples concerning the Samaritans, he reminded them, look, we're reaping today for something we didn't sow. There were some people who went before us who sowed the seed, and now we're reaping the harvest. And so some of us will sow seed. We are the first person to, to speak to someone about the claims of Christ, and, and other people are farther along where they are immediately ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be involved in sowing and reaping and really in both. And so God doesn't say, hey, you lost people, come on into the church and get saved. No, He tells us to go into the highways and the byways and the lanes and to bring them in, to compel them in. And so fruit has within itself seed for more fruit. And the biblical principle is that healthy sheep will indeed reproduce. And so Jesus promises us fruit and not transient fruit, not the kind of fruit that is man-made that eventually just disappears, though there will be some people that you will share the gospel with based on the parable of the sower who will go south. They won't stick with it. Three of the four soils go south. They don't stick with it. But there will be some fruit, as Jesus said, that will remain. They will be eternal fruit. And so Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 30 reminds us, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. Look, if you want to be wise, among other things, you do not want to go to heaven empty-handed. He wants to use you personally to go. He's talking about the Great Commission again. As you go, to go and to bear fruit, the fruit of conversion. 
So again, if you've not led anyone to Christ in the last few years, listen carefully because what you find here in Acts 28, which is why I've selected this passage, are three qualities, three abilities that if you cooperate with God the Holy Spirit, He will use you in this process. The first ability, I suppose, is the best ability and the most important ability, and it is availability. So Roman numeral one there in your outline, the Apostle Paul was available in showing Christ. He's available in showing Christ. Now, if you've read the previous chapter, then you know that as Paul journeyed from Caesarea to Rome on a boat with 275 other people, a typhoon came along and ended up shipwrecking them. Turn back a page or so to uh, to, uh, Acts chapter 27 and look, if you will, at verse 14 for a moment. There we're told, but before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Euryquilo. The word for violent is the Greek word tuphonikos. You can hear our English word, typhoon. On one side of the equator, they call hurricanes a typhoon. And so it was a howling wind. It was a hurricane. Some of your translations render it Euryclidon. It's a Greek word that means literally a northeaster. And the people in those early centuries feared those storms. They had no technology that could tell them they were coming. Many a boat went down to the bottom of the Mediterranean because of these nor'easters. On this occasion, the ship is approaching the coast of Malta, and the waves and the surf break it to pieces. Look at chapter 27 in verse 41. We're told, but striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, who becomes a leading actor in this pericope of Scripture, the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that all were brought safely to land, just as God had prophesied. None perished. And so chapter 28 opens with that. Look at 28 in verse 1. When they had been brought safely through... Then we found out that the island was called Malta. Here's a slide that might help you. Uh, You can see the uh, boot of Italy. And down here on the left-hand corner is Sicily. And right below Sicily is this little island called Malta. I was on a ship one time when we went by Malta. And it's not a huge island. It's rather small, so to speak. And they didn't know that it was Malta. It's 17 miles long. It is nine miles wild. It happened during the night. And so when they get there, they discover where they are. We're told in verse 2, the natives, literally the Barbaroi, some of your translations say the barbarians, as in the margin of the New American Standard out there in the notes, the natives or the local inhabitants, the Net, Net Bible puts it, showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. 
Now, when Luke calls them barbarians, that's not a put-down, and that's why many newer translations, because of the nuance of the word barbarian in our day, render it a little differently, like the natives or the inhabitants of the land. But understand, in the Greek's mind, if you didn't speak Greek, it didn't matter how well-educated you were, you were considered a barbarian. So here it is. It's still raining from the hurricane. Paul and his shipmates are soaked to the bone. It's the time of year when the water's still rather cold. And these Maltons come along, and they build this big bonfire for the 276 cold, shivering people to help them to warm up and maybe to dry off their clothes a little bit. Look at verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a echidna, a viper, it's a Greek word for a poisonous snake, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled as to what kind of poisonous snake this was. We don't know. It doesn't matter. But we know it's poisonous. Luke would have known that because he was a medical doctor and was trained in dealing with people who had been built, bitten by poisonous snakes. The natives would have known the snake because, of course, they lived on the island and they knew immediately this was a viper of sorts. And of course, the Holy Spirit knew it was a poisonous snake because he inspires Luke to use that particular word to describe this poisonous viper. Well, they thought, Paul, he survived the storm and the shipwreck, but he's going to die at the fangs of this snake. Look at verse 4. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So these pagan natives conclude Paul's a murderer. It's happened. Justly, this is poetic justice of sorts. The god of the seas, Neptune, failed to take his life. And so Nesimus, the goddess of retribution, is pulling it off. In either case, verse 5, however, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now, by the way, this is similar to the counsel that Jesus gave in Mark chapter 16. It's not counsel to be presumed upon, and it was counsel that was given to the apostles and to the apostles only, that they would be able to take up serpents, so to speak, without harm. And this is a good case in point. But beyond that, this is a situation where God, of course, had promised that Paul was going to go to Rome. So there was no possible way that the bite could be fatal for him. If God could take him through a typhoon, he could certainly take him through a snake bite. So it's not so much that nothing would stop Paul. It was more that God had a promise, and in God's mind, nothing is going to stop his servant from getting to Rome because he has a plan for him. So with no ill effects... The natives assume he's not guilty, so he must be a god. And by the way, did you notice what the Apostle Paul was doing when this viper bit him? The text says in verse 3 that he was picking up sticks. Now think about that for a moment. Think about all that Paul had done for the other 275 people on board. Remember, he was the person that God used ahead of time to warn them ever before they left port, that the ship was going to go down. 
He was the one who instructed them that they would all make it safely, that when the shipwreck, shipwreck went down, they would all be protected. He was the one who warned the sailors that they should not jump overboard, that they should do exactly as the angel of God told Paul. And through all of this, everything Paul said, all 276 on board were safely preserved. After all Paul had done, he might have thought of himself, if he were arrogant, as a big shot. He might have requested a throne. He might have asked other people to serve him. He might have pleaded exhaustion from the whole process, both emotionally and physically. But Paul doesn't utter a word of complaint. He doesn't bellyache about the rain or the wind and the cold. What's he doing? He's picking up wood to help keep this fire going. Verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were islands, were lands, excuse me, belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. So Publius owns a big estate here on the island. He's obviously a wealthy man. And his home is right near the site of the shipwreck. And so for three days, with an open heart and a generous spirit, he showed hospitality to all 276 people. And Paul soon discovers that Publius' dad has the fevers. And in the original Greek, it underscores that it is severe and it is recurring. In fact, dysentery, it's the Greek word dysenteria. We get our word dysentery from it. And it's used to describe someone who is cramping with diarrhea. So Paul goes to his house, he prays over him, he lays hands on him, and his dad is instantly healed. Verse 9, after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. Paul emptied out the sick rooms, he emptied out the hospitals, so to speak, there on the island. Folks were being healed, and no one was turned away. No case was too hard for the apostle. No one was told, well, you don't have enough faith. No one was said, well, you've been healed. You just need to wait for it to happen. No, Paul was truly manifesting the first century gift of healing. Why? Because he was an apostle. These folks today are fakes and frauds and phonies. Listen, God can still heal if he so chooses, but the gift of healing was a unique apostolic gift put out in the margin, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul says it was a sign of a true apostle. And so only the apostles and those whom they had designated had this unique special ability. Now, while Luke does not mention it, I am convinced that Paul preached the gospel as he healed people. He didn't have to mention it, Luke, because all the way through Acts, whenever Paul did miracles and healed, he always gave Jesus the credit. I'm sure not for one split second he wanted these folks to think, well, look what I'm doing. No, he was representing Jesus, and he affirmed that Jesus did it through him. And I guarantee, as Paul was serving these people, that this became a springboard time and time again with all these sick hurting people to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But what I want you to see is that Paul is available in showing Christ. He has a servant's heart. It reminds me of one rainy day in Northfield, Massachusetts, when a man accompanied by his two daughters arrived at the train depot, hoping to enroll his young daughters in the D.L. Moody School for Young Women. 
The three needed help with their luggage, and so he saw a rather common man, as he described him, sitting on the wagon, and he drafted him to help. He said, hey, come here. The man listened and helped him, and he said, I need to go to the D.L. Moody school. He said, well, I'm, I'm waiting for some other people to come. Listen, I need to go, and I need to go now. And, and the man listened, and, and he got there, much to his surprise. The cabbie, so to speak, was Dwight Lyman Moody. He was a servant. And most people that God uses in bringing people into the kingdom, they are servants. Why? Because servants are like Jesus, and God uses people like Jesus. Unfortunately, many Christians avoid humble, simple tasks like picking up sticks. But a true spiritual leader will be a servant. And when you are available to manifest servanthood, God brings opportunities your way that you never would have dreamt of. Some of you dads and moms have not run away from your God-given responsibility, and you're raising your children biblically. And people see what you have, and their families are falling apart, and it gives you an opportunity to share Jesus Christ with them. Listen, many, many a family who have visited this church, they came because they saw another family that was healthy, and they knew they didn't have what that family wanted, and they definitely wanted it. I have no doubt that in a congregation this size, that many of you unselfishly give yourself. And God uses that. He gives you those little chances in which to share the gospel because of it. And I hope you have a servant's mentality because on that occasion, if you remember when the disciples were debating over who's the greatest in the kingdom of God, it's pre-Pentecost, it's pre-regeneration. Jesus said, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Ask yourself this morning, am I available to serve others? Do I have a servant's heart? And I fear that some of God's people go to heaven empty-handed for the simple reason they are not servants. But when someone becomes a servant, I mean, it's compelling to people. People say, you know, he's really a great guy. I mean, she's really an exceptional person. What is it that makes them tick? And so you have an opportunity to tell them about Christ. Three months later, they leave the island. Look at verse 10. They also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. Paul had won their hearts. He had been in homes across this island. He had been welcomed, him and all of his friends. And the text says, with many marks of respect, not to mention out of their own pocket. Remember, these folks had lost everything. They supplied them with their needs for the journey back to Rome. What a testimony, not only against the people on the island, of whom I'm sure many came to Christ, but even of the Roman soldiers that were accompanying them on the ship. 
Now, please know it wasn't always like this for the Apostle Paul. Many times Paul would be a real servant, and he didn't get a warm reception. He'd be driven out of town. But as a general principle, when you are a servant, you will have opportunity in which to share Christ. So that's the first thing. Paul was available in showing Christ. He showed people the kind of person Jesus was, one who came to serve. Secondly, I want you to notice not only was he available in showing Christ, Paul was adaptable in serving Christ. He was adaptable in serving Christ. Look now, if you will, at verse 11. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. Now, that's a little interesting note that Luke drops in there. The twin brothers, uh, they were the mythical twin sons of Zeus and Leda, named Castor and Paulus. And so some English translations, they interpret the twin brothers because we know definitively, historically, the names of these twin brothers. But the Greek text says the twin brothers and not Castor and Pollux. In either case, these pagan navigators, these pagan sailors, look to these uh, gods of sorts for safety, for protection on the seas, kind of like people in the 60s and 70s. Some still do it. They put these little icons up on the dashboard. Oh, this is the patron saint of so-and-so who's going to protect us on our trip. Look now, if you will, at verse 12. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, no doubt waiting for a favorable wind. Let me bring up a map here. Uh, There we go. Um, If you see here Syracuse, it's about 80 miles north of, of Malta there on a larger island, so to speak, called uh, Sicily. They leave, Sar- they leave Malta, they go to Syracuse, and then they come to this place, which is on the boot of Italy, called Regium. It's part of Italy itself. And listen to these verses and watch the map as I read through it. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. That's another 70 miles up the coast on the toe of Italy. And a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli, That's a good Italian name, Puteoli. And from there, as we'll see in a moment, they went to three ends. It becomes an important place in the narrative and ultimately to Rome. So Puteoli is another 180 miles north, and it serves as the port even to this day of Naples, Italy. And then in verse 14, there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And then the end of verse 14 says, and thus we came to Rome. And the final lap would have been 125 miles on the Appian Way. Now, we're not told why they spent seven days there, but more than likely, Julius the Centurion had official Roman business that he had to attend to. But in the sovereignty of God, they're there for seven days. And there's a church there. And Paul, as an apostle, is going to teach and instruct and encourage the Christians who are there. And this centurion, who had a deep respect for Paul, gave him a certain amount of freedom, he and his Christian friends there in the town. Paul, the prisoner, was a man of integrity. He knew that Paul was determined to go to Rome and nothing was going to stop him and that Paul's word could be trusted. I won't be at all surprised if we meet Julius the centurion in heaven someday. So here's Paul in Puteoli. He's ministering to the saints and he's being ministered to the saints. Not only does he serve the believers, but they serve him. And it's the biblical principle, you reap what you sow. People who are servants never have a lack of people to help serve them. 
And so what a week of fellowship it must have been. You know, Paul, of course, when he eventually gets to Rome, he says, I want to go to Rome. And in the opening chapter, he says, one, because, uh, you know, I want to exercise my spiritual gift, that of a teacher, as an apostle. He wanted to build them up. He also said, I, I want to see some fruit there. I want to see some people saved while I'm there. And then in addition, he said, I want to be encouraged by your faith, and I want you to be encouraged by my faith. Paul, the great apostle in the church at Rome, much like in this text, he is encouraged by other believers. He's not so super spiritual that he doesn't need the saints. He desperately needs them. We all need each other. And I'm sure he told the story of the shipwreck. They were probably all on the edge of their seat. Tell us again, Paul, what happened? What did God do? And they were just blown away. Verse 15, and the brethren when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns, we just saw that on the map, to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, Rome at last was a dream come true. Paul had been waiting for years to come to Rome, and what a strategic city, because the saying is true, all roads lead to Rome. So if you reach Rome, you reach potentially a large part of the Roman Empire because people would travel to that. Now, maybe when he envisioned years earlier about going to Rome, he thought he would blitz the synagogues there as he did in town to town on his missionary journeys. Maybe he thought he'd do some open-air evangelism like he did up on top of Mars Hill. But that's not what happens. He arrives here as a prisoner. Proverbs 16 says, a man plans his ways but God directs his steps. And so when the news is out, believers come 43 miles from the market of Appius, and they come 50 miles from a little town called Three Inns. And the Christians in Rome, for two years, are able to benefit through the ministry of this great apostle. And what happened when they came? Notice, and when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. God encouraged Paul through the people. He thanked God and took courage. And that's why we're not to forsake our assembling together as is a habit of some. But we are to encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day, the return of Christ, which we are seeing the visuals for, drawing near. There's an assumption in the New Testament that you take the initiative to build Christian friendships. The writer of the Hebrews will say, encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, there's an assumption that you're not just finding fellowship on Sunday morning, but throughout the week, as long as it's called today, you're involved in the lives of other believers. And so Paul is encouraged and he is encouraging. Notice the restrictions, though, that he experienced. Verse 16. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So when he finally gets into the city of a million people in the first century, a wide-open mission field, he is confined to quarters. Julius is long gone, and according to verse 30, for two years, and according to verse 20, he's chained to a guard. Now, we need to remember that circumstances don't always go as we plan for them to go. But it was no mistake that Paul under the providence of God, was experiencing the circumstances he knew because God had a plan in them, and Paul understood that. He is being restricted. 
under house arrest. In fact, there are four limitations that are brought out in the text, and none of them stop him. He uses them all to his advantage. First, since he cannot go to the people, the people come to him. Look at verse 17. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and when they came together, he began saying to them, brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And you can almost hear the chain rattling as he writes. A chain that Paul says he's wearing, notice, for the sake of the hope of Israel. Paul is saying, listen, I am being incarcerated on behalf of the Messiah, the one whom we have longed for for millennia. For centuries, we've been looking and longing and waiting, and he has finally come. And so Paul followed his consistent practice. He would go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so he calls these Jews... And normally, you'd find those Jews in the synagogue, but under God's providence, he invites them, and they come. They come willingly. Paul's not discouraged. He is not moping and groaning. Look, I'm in the, under house arrest. I'm chained to a guard. No, he's just thinking God must have a different plan. He is adaptable. Second, another limitation, he can't unchain himself. In fact, he uses this as an object lesson in some of the letters that he writes. Remember, he's chained to these guards, and he writes during this time the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, and his letter to Philemon. For instance, in Ephesians 6, he, from this experience, uses this imagery. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. He got that imagery right here. And he makes spiritual parallels. He describes the soldier's belt, which is the belt of truth. He describes the breastplate as the breastplate of righteousness. He describes the Romans' battle sandals as feet prepared for sharing the gospel. He describes the shield as the shield of faith. And he describes the helmet as the hope, the guarantee of our salvation. So instead of grumbling and breaking fellowship with God, he uses these circumstances for the glory of God. And during these two years, he writes the prison epistles, as we call them, along with the letter to Philemon. God does not waste his time. God never wastes any of the so-called negative circumstances we are in. Third, I learned that Paul used his circumstances as an opportunity to reach the praetorian guard. In the book of Philippians, uh, an epistle it's not the major theme, but it's one of the underlying theme. We sometimes call it the epistle of joy. Uh, he describes some of the things that took place during these two years. Listen to these words from Philippians 1. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. These soldiers, they are the official bodyguard for imperial prisoners. They represented the emperor himself. And think about it. What does Paul do? 
He uses this opportunity of being chained every four hours, history tells us, to a new guard to galvanize the church to whom he is writing to be faithful to share their faith. And so he'll go on in Philippians and say, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. In other words, if if Paul can preach the gospel while under house arrest and chained to a guard, what's my excuse? What have you done with your limitations? Have you ever asked God to take some of the seemingly negative circumstances and turn them for the progress of the gospel? Listen, we don't always believe it. I don't always believe it, but it's true whether you believe it or not. God works all things together for good. And when we thank Him by faith, it frees the Spirit of God up to move Never one word of complaint in this entire chapter. No complaining in Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians or Philemon. I mean, he's got a captive audience. Every four hours, he's got a new prisoner chained to him. What's he telling them about? Jesus. (laughs) The whole praetorian guard had heard the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the few Christian pastors in Germany during the Second World War who stood strong for Christ, who opposed Hitler and his desire to exterminate the Jewish people. The SS troops had imprisoned him. They beat him black and blue. They stripped him. He had whelps all over his body. They took even his wedding band. And he wrote, and I quote, they have taken away everything. They have taken away my hair, my clothing, my family, my belongings, But they cannot take away my Lord from my heart, nor make me have an attitude toward them that I don't want to have. That's what Paul was like. He said, I'm not going to succumb to my circumstances. I'm not going to succumb to this house arrest. I'm not going to succumb to this chain. Wherever Paul went, he preached the gospel. If he was in the marketplace, he shared there. If he was in the synagogue, he shared there. If he was in jail or under house arrest, wherever he went, he shared the gospel. Now, there was a fourth limitation that he also adapted to. While he can't alter these false charges that were made against him by the Jews back in Jerusalem that they carried to Caesarea... We just read of that in verses 18 to 20. He can't make those changes, but he can keep sharing Christ. Look at verse 21. They said to him, these Jews, we have neither received letters. Paul thought they had, but they say, no, we've neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad against you. So somewhere between Israel and Rome, the gossip chain of false accusations had broken down. It had dried up. And they're at least open to hear what the apostle has to say. Remember, they're curious. What do you mean? You're in chains for the hope of Israel. Verse 22. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. While not spoken of negatively by Jews from Israel, Christianity nonetheless is viewed as a sect. And they said, everything we hear about this Christianity that Yeshua is the Messiah is negative. It's bad news. It's spoken against everywhere. But again, Paul doesn't succumb to his circumstances. It doesn't slow him down one bit. Look at verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. 
He's caged, he's chained, he's quarantined, but they come in large numbers. Again, God's never hindered by circumstances. If we are willing to adapt by faith, then God can use us in whatever circumstances we are in. So Paul, he's available in showing Christ. Christ was a servant. Paul demonstrated servanthood. Paul was adaptable in serving Christ. He didn't let the circumstances slow him down one bit. Finally, the apostle Paul was untiring in sharing Christ. He was an untiring individual in sharing Christ. We're told here in verse 23, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Luke tells us he preached from two sources, the law of Moses, the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, and then from the prophets, that was considered the rest. And so the way they would often describe the Tanakh, the Old Testament, was simply the law and the prophets. He couldn't turn to 1 Corinthians or Romans or 2 Corinthians that he had written on the third missionary journey. He couldn't turn to First and Second Thessalonians that he had written during the second missionary journey. He couldn't turn to Galatians that he had written at the end of the first missionary journey. Why? Because the only books they were interested in was the Old Testament. My wife and I served at Duke University for five years as campus ministers of sorts. She wouldn't call herself a minister, but, you know, she worked with women. And 25% of the campus was Jewish. And, of course, God wanted us to reach the Jews there as much as he did the Gentiles. And some of the Jews, depending on how close they were to practicing Judaism, you couldn't open the New Testament. You couldn't begin with John 3.16. It was either from the Law and the Prophets or it wasn't from anything. And Paul spoke, the Scripture says, of the kingdom of God. I mean, the Scripture says he was tireless in this. The text says he preached from morning until evening, and you thought my sermons were long. <laughs> Listen, 20 minutes will not change a life. Sermonettes are for Christianettes. He preached day and night of the kingdom of God, which means he preached about the king, the Lord Jesus. He preached that he is the ruler and the sovereign, and we have all rebelled against the living God with our sin. Today in pulpits all across America, the social gospel is indeed trying to replace the true gospel, and it's packaged under social justice. There's nothing true about social justice as it's being propagated in our day. It's nothing more than communism and socialism, and it's being packaged under the Black Lives Matter movement and most sharp African-Americans recognizes every God-given child of God recognizes that black lives do matter, but the Black Lives Matter movement has nothing to do with what the Scripture teaches. Started by three women, one a lesbian, one bisexual, the other a hardcore feminist bisexual. For a long time, they had their beliefs on their homepage. I noticed a few months ago they removed them, but I copy-pasted them all before they were removed. But they were just doing the same old thing, the social gospel. Walter Rauschenbusch is called the father of the social gospel. 
and in the 19th century, he said that the problem with man is the environment we live in. And that Jesus came to change our environment to make life better. And that's the social gospel. That's the good news we are to preach. May I remind you that it has nothing to do with an environment. In a perfect, unfallen environment, Adam and Eve rebelled against the living God. And so our government, we're always looking for solutions. And, you know, we had a war on drugs and a war on poverty and a a war on ignorance and now a war on global warming. What we need is a war on sin. That's the answer. We need to be preaching the word of God. And our government is always throwing up its hands, coming up with a new solution. What's the answer? May I, without sounding simplistic, the answer is so simple, it is simply believing and obeying this book. That is the answer. That's what we need. The social gospel does not address the sin problem. It just makes hell a better place potentially to go to from. But when you preach the true gospel... Lives are transformed. The way they look at people totally radically changes. There aren't born-again racists, at least who haven't, who have matured some. Someone who's a racist isn't born again, or at best they are a baby, 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 baby Christian. By this we know we pass out of death into life. We love the brethren, whatever stripe they may be. So here's Paul, he's preaching the kingdom of God, that you need to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You see, the social gospel says you need a boost from below. The true gospel says you need a birth from above. And when you are born again, you change kingdoms. You come into a new kingdom. I have no doubt he probably spoke about Christ's encounter with Nicodemus, that you must, you must, you must, three times over, be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And he does it from the law. And I'm sure in the Torah, he probably used those typologies like Abraham up there on top of Mount Moriah, where every single aspect of what happened there was a picture of what Jesus would do, such that Jesus could say, Abraham saw my day. And I'm sure, no doubt, he described the feasts of Israel that God had sanctioned, how each feast was a picture of the work of the Lord Jesus. And no doubt, as he went to the prophets, whether it's Daniel or Jeremiah or Isaiah, whoever it was, Micah, he point by point by point showed how the Lord Jesus fulfilled every single prophecy. And just like today, verse 24 says, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. The gospel always divides the saved from the lost, the unwilling from the willing, the bankrupt sinner from the self-righteous religious man. Some were persuaded, others, the text says, would not believe. Some enthroned Jesus as Lord Others harden their hearts. What will you do? Some of you listening to me, you've never enthroned Jesus as Lord. And the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. And if you tell God no today, you've only hardened your heart. And so the gospel always divides, verse 25. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken. One parting word. Paul says, wait a minute, don't leave yet. I've got one last thing I want to say to you. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father saying, go to this people and say, 
You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. Jesus, by the way, quotes the same text of Scripture in John, the 12th chapter, that when God gives you revelation and you say no to it, you say no to God long enough, then just like Pharaoh first hardened his heart, then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God can harden your heart. If you reject Jesus and put him off and off and off, then there will come a time when you cannot hear, where you cannot see, and you cannot believe. This message is just as true today as it was in Paul's day when he preached it. And he stayed two full years, verse 29 first. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. He's not at liberty to go anywhere. They came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all openness unhindered. And with that, Luke ends the book. The book starts where it ends. It starts with preaching Jesus. It ends with preaching Jesus and everything in between. People need to hear about Jesus, the one who came to seek and to save that which is lost. So how are we going to apply this today? Let me suggest three applications by way of questions. Number one, ask yourself, are you available in showing Christ? Are you available in showing Christ? Remember, the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve. And people will be blown away as you are a servant. You might be picking up sticks like Paul. You might be picking up the trash on your next door neighbor's lot that someone dumped all over it. You might be driving that sick person to their cancer treatments because they can't drive themselves. You might be listening to someone who is hurting and their life is seemingly falling apart. You may be bringing a meal to a new mother because she has no family nearby. When the interests of others become more important than your own, you're showing Christ. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He saw others' interests, your interests, mine, as more important than his own. And when you do that, there will be opportunities. Second, are you adaptable in serving Christ? Do you see the circumstances that God brings as an expression of his sovereignty. God works all things together for good, and when we believe that, God gives us a chance. It might be the waitress that my wife and I had who totally messed up everything that day. But by God's grace, he gave us patience and an opportunity to share the gospel with her. It might be the fellow who just stops in front of your house and he's asking for directions. I don't see anything as an accident. Someone who comes on my property or stops in front of my house to talk, I see that as a divine appointment. Or it might be some customer rep. Sometimes I've blown it, 
you know, they've just messed up so bad. But by God's grace this week, I had a customer rep who just, I mean, they had blown it so bad. And this dear fellow was so apologetic and just, oh man, this is just one of these weeks, just one of these days and on and on and on. And I said, it's okay. And I said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. On a scale of zero to 100, (laughs) how sure are you that you go to heaven? And it got dead silent on the phone. And you could hear his voice crack. And he began to tell me about his grandfather who had been a preacher, who had gone on to heaven, and about his grandfather who had been praying for him to become a Christian. And in the providence of God, by God's grace, I believe I was an answer to his grandfather's prayer. Third and finally, are you untiring in sharing Christ? I think by now you, wrote the, you understand that Luke wrote the book of Acts not just to give us a historical record. He wrote it to encourage us to be faithful, not to quit. And when you are faithful and untiring, sooner or later, you will see a fulfillment of what Paul said in Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Now, you may be here for the first time. You stumbled in the providence of God on our broadcast. Steve sent me an email this week. A lady from the United Kingdom stumbled on friend day, listened and became a Christian and wanted us to know. And you may be on our broadcast today and in God's providence, you are listening. You may be on one of our campuses, you may be in this auditorium or the adjacent one, and you're not absolutely sure that if this were your last day on earth that heaven is your home. You can be. If you will call upon the name of Christ, he will save you today. If you admit that your sin is offensive, that it needs to be forgiven and changed, and put your faith where God put your sin on Christ, the one who died and was raised for you, he will save you instantly. He will give you the gift of God, which is eternal life. But if you are saved, don't go to heaven empty-handed. In fact, why don't you ask God not to let this year conclude empty-handed? Let him use you. Our Father, we are so thankful for your incredible grace that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. We want to be an obedient people, a yielded people. We don't want to be like the church at Laodicea that was complacent and lukewarm and unusable We certainly don't want to be a complicit church like some of the churches in the Revelation who looked the other way and allowed sin without ever speaking against it in their own midst. We want to be a courageous church and courageous people that make up that church that will stand for truth no matter what it costs us who will speak up for what is right and true. You said your law is like a schoolmaster to lead people to Christ. Thank you that when we hold up the truth, people are convicted of their sin just as we were. And those hearts that are soft will look to you for the forgiveness that you've provided through your son. 
So help us to excel even more in these three areas that we've discussed. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his honor and glory. Amen. Would you stand? Maybe you have a decision to make this morning. You've received Christ as your Savior and you've never made it public. That's a first step. Maybe you've been saved, but you haven't taken on the emblematic symbol that God gives us of baptism, something we do after we're saved, picturing death, burial, and resurrection. You might have been baptized as an infant, maybe as an adult, but you weren't born again. You want to put your baptism on the right side of your conversion. That's an act of obedience. Maybe you're here this morning and you need a church home. You're in Grays or Graniteville, and we're thankful for those who have been joining on those campuses. You have a decision to make to come and be a part of this fellowship. I'm going to invite you as we sing this hymn to leave your seat and to meet me or someone in those auditoriums in the front row. Matt, lead us. Would you come?